Well, good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Good. Come on. Well, if you guys have a Bible, go ahead and flip to 1 Samuel, uh, looking at chapter 15, verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Rob kicked us off in this series that we're talking about right now uh, called Unshakable. Right? And in this series, what we're doing is we are looking at some of the key pillars of the faith, uh, key central beliefs uh, that we as followers of Jesus cling to and grip onto because we see them in God's word that he has spoken himself to us and therefore they stand as a, as a pillar, as a foundation that we can lean on. And last week, Rob had talked to us about who is this God and can I trust him, right? If you guys are here last week, that's what what Pastor Rob brought to us uh, last week. But this week, we're going to continue on in that series. Uh, And I want to do it by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11. I want us to to read this together. Uh, We'll pray and then we'll dive on into it for this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11 says this. God speaking to the prophet Samuel. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. One more time, he says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Let's go ahead and pray together and then we'll dive on into this this text. Oh, Father, I thank you for for this morning. I thank you for the time you've given us, Lord. I thank you for who you are, that we get to uh, look into your word and see characteristics, see traits, see truths about you, that we're not just, man, just left to our own devices to uh, imagine or think up or give our opinions about what you are like, but you've spoken to us and you've told us what you are like. You've revealed it to us. You've shown it to us. We don't have to sit in a dark room wondering and questioning. And, and even though our thoughts it will come to us at times, causing us to doubt and causing us to second guess, we always have your word that we can stand on and lean on to know the God that we serve and the God that we follow and the God that we love and the God who ultimately saved us and brought us out of the pit to life everlasting. I pray, Father, that this morning, that as we look at a key pillar of who you are, Father, I pray that you would impact us with your truth with power, that it wouldn't be something that we just read and intellectually comprehend, but that we would be affected by it, that we would be changed by it, that it would have a a result in our life that's tangible. And if you guys are willing, I just ask you this morning, just, just pray for yourself. Pray, God, please teach me something here this morning. And then if you could pray for me, uh, pray that what I say would be helpful, would be clear, uh, and would ultimately make God look awesome. Well, Father, we love you and uh, we trust you. Uh, please use this time, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. 
Well, this morning, I, uh, I kind of wanted to start off a little differently than I, than I usually do, kind of give a, a quick illustration, quick kind of um, tangible uh, picture image, right? So I've got these kind of two stools up here um, that were very kindly donated to me by the kids' ministry by Pastor Josh. And so if you see Josh at all today, thank him for that. Um, but I've got this stool right here and right there, same thing, identical. And a stool is pretty common, right? It's made to be sat on, right? It's made to like put your trust in and put your weight on and rest on and find a, a moment of relief on, right? And it's, and it's pretty sturdy. Like I, I trust this thing, right? Like I'm not going to be able to really do a whole lot that's, that's going to affect this, right? So I, I have a level of trust in this stool right here. I mean, I could, I could stand right there on it, right? If I can balance, right? I can stand. I can even go a little higher if I wanted to, right? And it's going to hold me. It's not going to go anywhere, all right? Because I have a level of trust in this stool because I know how it's been built. I know how it's been structured. But if for some reason something about this stool changed, right? Like if, if something about its structure changed and it didn't really look the same way that it did before, well, I don't know how I feel about climbing up on it right now. I mean, I, I, might, I might be able to like kind of put some more weight on it, but with it changing like this, it affects kind of my level of trust. And I bring that up because I think in our relationships with Christ, when we first come to faith, when we hear the gospel, and the power of, 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 of preaching the word that has an effect on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? I think we see God and we interact with God and our relationship with him. It's like we found this place of just rest and sturdiness that we can come to him and we can lean on him no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what circumstances we're in. Like he is this, this sure foundation, this place we can lean on, we can put our weight on, we can trust in. But if you're anything like me, right, as you become a Christian, as you seek to follow Jesus, like life is not perfect, right? And you are certainly not perfect and I'm not perfect. And we all kind of make mistakes in our lives and and we end up stumbling in areas and we end up falling in areas and we end up getting caught even up in habits of sin and disobedience to God, turning away from him, right? Things in our lives change. And we may not always think about it this way, but in some ways, I think in the back of our minds, we start to wonder, as my life has changed, we start treating God as though he's changed as well. Because when we first came to faith and we believed the gospel for our salvation, man, there was, there was nothing that could really shake you, right? No matter how dark your past was, no matter how dirty you felt, you heard the gospel that Jesus saves you. It has nothing to do with your work. It is a thousand percent a result of grace. By faith, you don't have to clean yourself up first. Jesus has just come to me. I'll make you new. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit inside of you. I'll give you new things you love that you didn't love before and things you hated that you don't hate any longer. I will change you. And we heard that and we're like, man, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. We believed it and we leaned on it. But as we lived our lives and made mistakes and fell into sin, we start wondering, like, has God changed his mind about that? What we start to feel. Like, yeah, he saved me back then, but 
all the things that have happened up till now. What does he think about that? And then we read verses like this with Saul and God looking at Saul and being like, man, I wish I hadn't made Saul king. And I think it can lead us to wonder the exact same thing about ourselves at times of, has God changed his mind about me? And that can be a terrifying thought because if God's changed his mind about you, then he may not be as, as sturdy and as firm and as safe and as hope-filled of a place and as peaceful of a place, as much of a, a relief and a relaxation of a relationship that he once was. Because you start to wonder, maybe he doesn't think the same way about me anymore. That's what I want to talk about here this morning. Because I think that's something that we all will wrestle with at times. You know, if you're taking notes, that's the first point that, that I want us to, to, to really just acknowledge and realize is that we'll wonder, as crazy as it sounds, we'll wonder if God has changed his mind about us. Because we'll see stuff like this with Saul, right? When you encounter Saul, and this is the crazy thing. When you first find Saul in the Bible, as you first are introduced to him as an individual, like Saul seems like a pretty solid guy. Or you read 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Right? God goes to Samuel. He's like, hey, there's this guy, Saul. He's coming to you, and he's going to be the king of Israel, and I'm going to use him to save my people from the Philistines. Or we even read, this is crazy, we even read that as Saul was chosen to be king, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and God actually changes him into a new person. 1 Samuel 10, 6, And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Sounds a lot like what happens to us when we place our faith in Christ. Then as you follow along in Saul's life and Saul turns away from God, he actually begins to fear uh, the opinions and the voices of people around him more than he fears the opinion and the voice of God. You see Saul drifting away from God. My parents are in town this, uh, this weekend from Florida. And uh, every time we get to go down to Florida, it's a blast, right? Because I love the beach, right? I'm a big beach person. Um, and uh, one time in particular, last time I think we went, uh, we went to the beach and we went swimming out in the water, right? And swim out there and, and having a lot of fun and out, and out there. And, and all of a sudden, just kind of like in passing, I look up and I look to the shoreline and, and all of a sudden, like I don't see my parents' umbrella anywhere, right? And I'm like, well, that's weird. Okay. And so I'm just kind of like scanning the shoreline looking for, and I think I see it like way off to the left, I was like, well, maybe that's it. I just start swimming towards shore, and I get to shore, and like, sure enough, like, it's way over there. And most of y'all probably know what I'm describing, right? In that moment, as I was out in the water, there's, there's this force in the water called the current, right, that just dragged me away from where I was before. And whether I realized it or not, like, I had been drifting from the spot that I was at before. Saul drifts from where he was at with God. And I think you and I have a tendency to do the exact same thing. We will drift 
from where maybe we were when we first placed our faith in Christ, and we'll find ourselves different than where we were before because we've drifted. And just like Saul, it can cause us to wonder if God has, in fact, changed his mind about us. And what I want to talk about here this morning is one of these, these unshakable pillars of Christianity. One of these unshakable pillars of the faith. One of these characteristics of God. Because this characteristic right here is so essential for following Jesus. Some theologians would even call it like, the, like this is the theological characteristic of God in which every other one ultimately hinges on. And it's this if you're taking notes. I want to talk about the immutability of God. The immutability of God. Basically what that means is that God does not change. Okay? God does not change. Now, pause for a second. Because I want to address something that I feel like is probably true um, in just me saying that. Right? The immutability of God. We had, Josie and I, my wife, had our first daughter four, four and a half months ago. Uh, our first kid, not our first daughter, first kid, period. Um, yeah, and, um, and so we, I would say, again, all the same procedures, went to the hospital, was in labor, all this stuff, and, and Josie had met with the doctors, right, to kind of talk about her pain plan and how she wanted to manage pain and, and all of these things, and, uh, and so they kind of discussed that and figured out, you know, when is it that you want to get an epidural, like all of that stuff, and, and so we got to the point in the delivery process and the laboring process, right, where she's like, epidural, come on, let's go, and, um, well, and, uh, and it, was, it was crazy because, like, after she got the epidural, it was, like, night and day, right? She's like, man, this, this pregnancy thing is cake. This is awesome. Like, and, uh, and it was great. She's like, that was not at all as bad as I thought it was going to be. And, and the reason it wasn't that bad, right, is because the medication that she had received, right, painkillers, basically simplified version of it, right, what it does is it goes in and it blocks the nerve messages from the part of your body to your brain so that therefore your brain does not register the pain that you are actually feeling. Right now, now the issue, the situation, the activity, whatever is supposed to be inducing that pain is still happening to you, right? She was still giving birth to our daughter. Like that didn't stop. But the messages had been cut off due to the medication that she had been on. She was no longer feeling the effect, the true effect of what it is that she was experiencing. And I think the same thing has a tendency to happen to you and I, especially, man, being in the Midwest, Bible Belt, evangelical central of America, because usually you grow up, especially if you grow up in that kind of culture, you hear stuff like, man, Jesus died for your sins and he loves you and, and, and God doesn't change and God is all powerful and God is all knowing and all these, you grow up hearing these things, which is not a bad thing, right? Raise up a child in the way in which he or she should go, right? Speak the word daily, right? The, the, the Jews actually would write God's law on their, on their doorpost. They would speak about it regularly with their kids. They wanted this to be a common conversation in the household. So it's not a bad thing that we hear this a lot. The problem, though, is that we can become, we, we can often become so indoctrinated with it, we hear it so often, that it just becomes white noise to us, and it loses the power that it actually carries with it. 
As I was trying to think about how to phrase this, I, I, I would phrase it this way, is that we have oftentimes been so medicated by the commonality of theological phrases and statements that we no longer experience the tangible power behind these truths and the significance that they hold. And that's my fear with talking about the immutability of God. But my goal this morning is that as we speak about this, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would feel the real weight and the real power and just the real grandeur of this characteristic of what is true about God. And so I want to talk about God's immutability, God's unchangingness in three kind of primary areas. I want to talk about God's being, God's purpose, and God's promise. God's being, God's purpose, and God's Promise. We'll dive on into it from here. So number one, God's being does not change. God's being does not change. Who he is, his characteristics do not change. In a, in a moment of just deep distress, the psalmist writes in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. He says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. God's God's being is unchangeable. And and stop and think about this for a second. Because this is really actually really interesting. When When I thought about this and I was researching this and studying this and kind of prepping for this message. Every single thing in life is changing. Everything is becoming something else. Let me just stop and think about that for a second. Everything, everything is becoming something else. Right? Butterflies, or caterpillars turn into butterflies, right? Seeds turn into trees and plants. Babies turn into adults. Even mountains eventually crumble and turn into topsoil. Like every single thing is changing. It is becoming something else. Nothing just stays stagnant as it is. It's just a matter of how long does it take for that thing to change. But every single thing is ultimately just moving from one degree of deterioration to another. Everything is, except for God. Except for God. Herman Bovink's a Dutch theologian, but he says it this way. He says, The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in him alone. For only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. Everything in this life changes except for God. His being does not change. Secondly, his purpose. His purpose does not change. Isaiah is, uh, is declaring to Israel kind of in a context of idolatry. In Isaiah 46, uh, verse 5 and 9 through 11, he, Isaiah says to this to Israel, he says, To whom will you liken me? Speaking about God. He says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and, it, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's purpose doesn't change. Which again, kind of be thinking like, well, like, okay, like fine, like his purpose doesn't change, right? But purposes in our, like in, in y'all's life, in my life, like constantly change. Remember when uh, we had, when I was in Oklahoma, we had a big snowstorm that came through. And uh, as, a, as a high schooler, um, the first thing you do in a snowstorm and afterwards when there's snow and there's ice on the ground is you jump in a truck and you find an empty parking lot and you just do donuts, right? Because that's what you do. Um, but you can only do that for so long. And so eventually you've got to think of something more entertaining to do and more fun. And so what our solution to that problem was, was we found a cardboard box in my buddy's garage. Uh, we found some rope and we tied the rope to the back of his truck. And one of us sat in the cardboard box holding onto the rope and the other one sat in the truck and drove the truck and continued to do donuts, right? Which was more fun. And it was all about looking at things and asking, how can I change the purpose of that, right? I took a cardboard box. I had a purpose of holding things and storing things, and I made it into a sled, right? Innovation. Purposes often change in our lives. Purposes will often change, but God's doesn't. God's purposes don't change. They never change. And when we're having a good day in our lives and things are going the way that we want them to do and some preacher or some teacher or somebody gets up there like, man, God's purpose in life is that he would be glorified above everything else, that he would be made to look awesome, period. And we can kind of sit in our chairs and our pews and be like, yeah, amen, awesome. Like God's purpose is to glorify himself. But then as soon as our life starts going bad and things start getting difficult, all of a sudden we think, no, 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 no. God's purpose is to alleviate my difficulty and make my life easier. It's not, because his purpose doesn't change. God's being does not change. God's purpose does not change. And then thirdly, God's promises do not change. God's promises do not change. Malachi 3.6 is kind of a key verse that people will use in talking about the immutability or the unchangeableness of God. Malachi 3.6 says this. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change, Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, the context here is important to understand when we're talking about how the promise of God doesn't change. Okay, so the context here in Malachi 3.6 is this is after Israel has already been brought out of exile, right? They're no longer in Babylon. They're no longer in Persia, right? None of that. They're not over there. They've already come back to the land of Israel, to Canaan. You've already had the book of Ezra, right, rebuilding the temple. You've already had the book of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. So Israel is back in the promised land with a rebuilt temple and a rebuilt wall. But what's happening is that the people of Israel haven't changed. They're still turning away from God. They're no longer turning towards idolatry like they were beforehand. They're just not valuing God as the treasure that he truly is, right? The, the, is, the people of Israel were, were starting to just bring kind of their second best or their, their kind of leftover lambs, right? With a little like broken nub and like a blind sheep, right? Just bringing them to be sacrificed. 
They weren't giving God their best. And the Levites, the priests, they, weren't, they were turning away from God as well because they weren't correcting the people. They were like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, like whatever, it doesn't really matter, like we'll just throw it in the fire, it all turns to ash anyway, like we'll sacrifice to God. The people of Israel were turning away from God. They had drifted from where they initially were. And so in this moment, God speaks to them in their rebellion. And he says this way, if I can paraphrase it this way, he says, because my promises don't change, I'm not through with you. It's because my promises don't change, I'm not through. This is where I remember this. He calls them children of Jacob. And he, and he does that intentionally because he wants to bring to their mind this idea of you are a people born out of one individual, Abraham, who I came to and I made a covenant promise with. You are people of the promise, so to speak. Paul brings this out in the letter of Ephesians too when he talks about how the Gentiles have been brought into the family of God as well, that they were strangers to the covenants of promise, but now they've been brought in. God's saying to Israel, you are people of promise, and because of the promise that I made to your father Abraham, I'm not done with you because my promise doesn't change. And therefore, you're not destroyed. And the question kind of, again, go back to our minds. Okay, well, what about Saul? All right, well, we started this whole message off talking about how Saul was king of Israel. And God looks at Saul and is like, eh, I've changed my mind about you. I don't think really I should have made you king. First Samuel 15, 11, right? I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from me, following me, and has not performed my commandments. It sounds a lot like what Israel was doing in Malachi and so what, what made Saul so unique? Why is it that God has changed his mind on Saul? Well, before we tackle that specific verse, which we're going to do here in a second, I need to kind of illust- bring out an illustration to help describe this because um, it's, it's, it's essential to see a distinction. When I was yay big, one of the favorite things that my mom and I would do together is we would go to the recycling center Every week, every other week, right? Because back then you didn't have, um, some of you maybe remember this, back then you didn't have a truck that came by and picked up all your recycling, right? You actually had to take all your recycling to a recycling center and they had like big bins for like paper and plastic and glass. And so you would take all your recycling stuff to the recycling center and then you would dump it all in the bin that it applied to, right? And so about every other week we would take a trip to the recycling center, which I loved actually only because my mom would always let me throw the glass bottles into the glass bin which I thought was loads of fun because I would just take them out and toss them up and just hear this like crash, right? Key first, that, and I later applied this into student ministry, understanding that all you have to do in order to make a fun student event is break something, right? And, and then it's great. And it's worked, actually. Um, but anyway, so that's what I was so excited about. It's like I'd take these glass bottles, throw them up there, crash, awesome, do it again. Like crash, bro, dopamine, just flooding into my system, right? So much fun. And... Uh, after a while, though, of doing this, I was like, ah, I'm getting a little bored. It's pretty cool to hear the glass break. But if I could see it break, like, that would just be way more fun, right? So I started, as I was chunking bottles up into this bin, pop, you know, um, I started thinking, I was like, man, like, what would happen if just accidentally, right, like, one slipped out of my hand and broke against the bin, and then, oh, man, like, it just, it, sorry, Mom, it just happened. And, uh, and so as I'm tossing bottles up here, I decide, like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And so I break one up against the, the side of the big bin, and it just shatters everywhere. And in that moment, 
pain just flooded into my system, right? All those neurological, uh, neurological messages going from my finger into my brain saying, ow, right? And I looked out at my hand and there was just blood everywhere. And my mom had to like rush me to the emergency room, I had to get like three or four or five stitches or whatever, like, and they had to shove a needle in there to numb it. And that was painful too. And, and I looked back on that moment, especially right afterwards. And I was like, man, I regret that I broke that bottle against that bin, right? Now, the reason I regretted breaking the bottle against the bin is because it resulted in something that was not something I wanted to experience, right? There was some kind of outcome that I did not see coming that happened. And so now with this new information in front of me, I was like, mm, if I could go back, I would do things differently because I didn't realize that this thing would actually happen and I would actually cut my finger and have to get stitches. But now that I know that I would cut my finger and get stitches, I wouldn't actually break that bottle because I don't want to go through that pain, right? I regretted it because there was a piece of information I didn't know. I didn't know what the future was going to hold. I didn't know what it was going to result in. That's not true with God. See, when God uses this regret, whatever it means, we're going to talk about that in here in a second, it does not mean that there was some kind of future event that he just did not see coming. And so, man, well, now that I know that Saul would turn away from me, like, ah, I'm not, I would not make him king again, right? If I go back, I'd make somebody else king. Let's find David and get that kid growing up faster, right? And make him king. God doesn't operate that way. He, he's not ever surprised by something. It's not like he sees something happening in your life. He's like, oh man, like I didn't know that was gonna happen. I would have done things differently if I'd have known that. He's not in the same category as you and I. Remember Isaiah said, he knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing he doesn't know. So it still kind of begs the question, okay, well, why then would God say that he regrets anything? And one of the theologians, how he summarizes, I'm going to say this, and we're going to talk about it a little bit further, but he says this. He says, in the cases of God being sorry that he had made man or that he had made Saul king, these two can be explained, can be understood as expressions of God's present displeasure toward the sinfulness of man. These instances should all be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at that moment. If the situation changes, then of course God's attitude or expression of intention will also change. This is just saying that God responds differently to different situations. All right, so I've got my four and a half month old daughter, right? On days when she's doing really good and she's laughing and she's giggling and she's hopping up and down, right? And she's crawling, kind of. I'm goofing off in front of her like I'm making silly faces, right? Like I'm relaxed, I'm hanging out, I'm joking around with her. But as soon as her demeanor changes and she starts getting kind of fussy and kind of like, you know, hungry and angry and whatnot, like all of a sudden, like I kind of flip my demeanor and I'm like, okay, well, let's jump into like inspection mode. Like what's going on? Like when's the last time she ate? When's the last time she slept? Like is her, is her diaper dirty? Like I start changing how I relate to her because the situation has changed in that moment. And as she gets older and she starts disobeying Josie and I, like that'll be a whole different demeanor and a whole different interaction with her. My interactions will change with her dependent upon the situation. And that's what God does in this moment. God's character always remains consistent. 
but he'll communicate this idea of regret and of remorse because he wants the readers to understand that that's the proper response when witnessing somebody turning away from God. You see, you don't see somebody turning away from God and all of a sudden be like, ah, this is great, like keep going. Like, no. The proper response, the right response for God to have in that moment is to use language to communicate this idea of extreme remorse and sadness for what's going on. God is not saying in that moment like, oh man, like if I'd have known Saul would go against for me, I would just do things differently back then. If I knew he'd turn away from me, like we would do things completely different. He's not saying that. He's saying remorse, the feelings of regret, of sadness, of anguish. Those are the proper responses for this kind of disobedience, this turning away from God. Because if you know in that moment you follow that story, like God doesn't actually even remove Saul as king at that moment. Saul continues to be king for a while. But God wants the readers to know this is not okay. This is not okay. God's being doesn't change. His purpose doesn't change. And his promise does not change. And the reason why that matters so much, why it's such an important and significant pillar to grip onto, especially in our days now, is because the immutability of God means that God can be trusted. It means that God can be trusted. You know, we started off with kind of these two contrasting stools right here, right? And I told you how like this is trustworthy. I can lean on it. I can, I can rest in it. This has changed. And it might still be kind of lean, but like I don't have the same level of confidence to climb up on this and stand on it as I did with that one because this one has changed. And because it's changed, I don't know how trustworthy it is now. This one hasn't changed, and I know I can still trust it. I can still climb up on it. That's why this is so important, is because once the immutability of God goes, so does his trustworthiness. Because you have to ask yourself, well, how did he change? Was it for the better, or was it for the worse? If it was for the better, does that mean that he wasn't actually all perfect beforehand? And if he wasn't all perfect beforehand, like how flawed was he? If it was for the worse, like well, how much worse did he change? Just a little bit worse or like a whole lot worse? Like if it's a little bit worse, are you willing to give your life to a God who's just kind of a little bit evil and not like a whole lot evil? If his promises change, again, how do you know? Like he still plans on Jesus coming back in person to rule. How do you know that? Like you're actually forgiven. God's immutability means that God can be trusted no matter what your circumstances are. No matter how much you even change in your life, God's being doesn't change, his purpose doesn't change, and his promise does not change, which means he can be trusted. You can trust his being, Romans eight thirty eight. All right? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can trust the purposes that he puts forward. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, I am sure 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion in the day that Jesus Christ comes. And his promises can be trusted. What, what sets Saul and you and I apart, one of the things that sets him apart from the rest of us is that Saul was not living under a new covenant world, under a new covenant relationship. Right, the new covenant, back then, in the Old Testament, not everybody had the Holy Spirit. Not every single person who followed Jesus had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was only given at certain times when God decided that it should be given for a specific purpose. They weren't living under the new covenant. Not the same that, that you and I live under now that Jeremiah prophesied in, in Jeremiah 31, 31, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And the night in which Jesus was betrayed in Luke twenty-two, twenty, he says, this cup that is poured out for you you is the new covenant in my blood. That we live under a new covenant. That means God can be trusted in his being, in his purpose, and in his promise. And because he can be trusted, this is the last thing that I want to bring up here before we finish out. Because he can be trusted, what it means for you and I is that it calls us to turn around. It calls us to turn around. See, we, we began this message with this idea of there being a time in your life where you placed your faith in Christ and you experienced the joy of new life in a relationship with him. But as life went on, you stumbled and you fell and you, you got caught up in sin and whatnot. And all of a sudden now you're wrestling with this idea of, well, am, is he still, does he still love me? Can I still go to him? Is he still for me? What if he's gotten tired of me? What if he's sick of all the mistakes that I've made? And what we see is, no, 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 he hasn't changed. He condemns sin. He condemns the sinful life that you're in. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to call evil good. I'm not going to call what you're doing okay. But what I am going to do is I'm going to call you to turn around. No matter how far deep into it you've gone, you can always turn around. And this is the exact same context in Malachi 3, 6 through 7. When God says to them, I'm not through with you, and he bases it off of a promise, just like we are based off of a promise, of a new covenant promise. Matthew th Malachi 3, 6 through 7. And it says, for, the, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And in verse 7, he says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And then he says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God says to you, just turn around. I'm the God that doesn't change. And yet, not a single creature in this world can say that, yet I can. I'm the God that doesn't change. And so no matter how much you feel as though maybe you've out-sinned to the cross, you can always turn around. 
You can always turn around. Stop walking away from God in something. Turn around and walk towards him. Because his being of mercy and compassion doesn't change. His purpose of redemption doesn't change. His promise of forgiveness doesn't change. God is unchanging. You turn around, he'll meet you there. He does not change, unlike the rest of the world. He is the unchanging God. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, Father, I, uh, Lord, I just ask again that, 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 man, we want to know you. We want to know you, not just, uh, not just ideas about you, not just um, things that we think up, Father, or opinions of other people. We want to know you as you are. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be medicated by the commonality of growing up in a culture and hearing phrases like Jesus loves you and God is always there for you and all these stuff, Father, but these truths would affect us in power, would change us, would have an effect on us, God, for your glory and for our good. I pray that you would meet us where we're at, God, that your spirit would lead us to turn around from areas in our lives in which that we have turned from you, knowing that when we turn around, you are right there because you don't change. And I praise you and I thank you for that, Father. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.